I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. I wanted to understand why sometimes the experience of falling in love felt as radically disruptive, as scary, as interesting, as compelling as the experience of being caught in a cycle of obsessions. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Hey, everyone. Uh, We're going to do something a little bit different this week. When we started this podcast a year ago, its original inspiration was a book that I wrote, uh, an essay collection called Thin Places. And as of today, Thin Places is now out in paperback um, in bookstores and online. And to celebrate that, um, we're turning the tables and I'm going to be answering the questions this week. Ah! Uh, <laughs> we're very lucky that Lydia Millet, who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, agreed to come back and play the host this week and ask me some questions. It was nerve wracking and weird to be answering the questions, but also so fun because Lydia is so wonderful. 
Um, we talked about all kinds of things from obsession to falling in love to encountering people with really different worldviews than your own. I had a blast. I hope you enjoy it. So in the first essay, uh, Attunement, which I, I particularly loved, you tell about a police officer who said that without Jesus, he'd have no reason not to shoot you. And throughout the co- the collection, you know, there, there are these moments when people profess their faith, and it's often a kind of single-minded faith that you're describing. And I was deeply impressed by how non-judgmental you were in, in rendering these descriptions and these, and these anecdotes. But, you know, I'm personally, I'm kind of afraid of people like that cop, you know, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of people like Abraham, who, who was ready to kill his kid to prove his faith and, and of those who see his story as more or less the story of a righteous man, you know, people who believe there's only one right answer to every question that, that they have that answer. Um, where faith seems to me, in such people to to shade into madness. So I guess I sort of wanted to ask you, I guess broadly about um, sort of where you think tolerance ends and and fear starts, where that line is for you in spending time with some of the people that you've spent time with. Um, and I, even the word tolerance is loaded and problematic, but you know where does I guess, empathy and, and alienation begin for you? And, and how do you manage, I don't know, those feelings, if you even have them, when you're with people who are deeply committed to a sort of monolithic worldview? Yeah, I, I do have deep ambivalence often when I'm talking to people who believe really deeply in something that I not only don't believe in, but can find frightening, as you're saying, or problematic, or, you know, who believe in politics that I find repugnant, right? Right. Um, But I, I think that a lot of these essays were, came out of a time in my life when I felt so lost. I felt like I wasn't sure what I believed and that I had maybe been a person who had gone through the experience of firm belief in something and then lost losing that over and over again. And I felt, I guess when I was, I started writing these essays when I was 25 and I had um, I had come out of a, a long-term relationship. I ha- had been with that guy since I was 18, and I thought I was going to marry him, and then that sort of fell apart. And I had really believed that we were supposed to be together, and then that had fallen apart. And uh, to my shock, I started to uh, get involved with women afterwards, which really also sort of shook the foundations. I had always thought sort of assumed that I was straight um, and found myself falling in love with a, really falling in love with a woman for the first time. Uh, and that was very terrifying, uh, exciting, but but really confusing in, the, in that same way of like, well, this was a, a, a serious thing that I believed. I'm 25 years old. I, um, isn't it, this is a thing that should have happened to me already, right? Like, I didn't think this was a pillar that was going to shake, Um at this time. And at that time, um, as I was getting into that relationship, I was assigned to go write about this 
community of Christians, these like young, very cool Christians that I wrote about for the essay Jesus Raves, which was the first essay I wrote in this book. And um, and so I started spending a lot of time around church, which reminded me that I used to be an evangelical Christian when I was a kid. Um, I got yeah. Acci- uh, yeah, I got accidentally converted at my parents unintentionally. Right? Yeah. Yeah. My parents didn't mean to, but they sent me to Bible camp when I was like maybe seven or eight. And I just like hook, line, and sinker was like, yes, this makes sense to me. This is true. I believe in a world suffused with a God who is good. Um, and then that went. That was like maybe the original, like, I fully know this to be true. And then if, when I was a teenager, it just felt like God left, right? Uh, which is an, a complicated, I mean, theologically complicated thing to say, because like, if you believe in a Christian God, he doesn't leave because he's everywhere. But my right, feeling was right. that he left. Right. Um, so anyway, I was I was like starting these essays, starting the process of writing this book in a period of profound confusion where I was around people, namely this Liberty Church community is what they were called, Liberty Church, while it felt like everything I had ever been sure about was not true. And like maybe I was just a person who was never going to be able to believe, have the comfort of believing in something like that. And so a lot of these essays come came out of an impulse to go ask people who seemed so sure about what they wanted to build their lives on, what their convictions were, who seemed to really, really know who they were and what they wanted and what was real and what was true. Um, because I didn't have that and I wanted it. And I felt like I was constantly on the verge of maybe having it. Uh-huh. Um, and I was curious how other people had found that for themselves. So that's a long, a long preamble to say that like part of the, the role of empathy, I think, for me in writing about, say, this, you know, evangelical cop who said that if, you know, sort of grilled me about how I felt about Jesus and then said if Jesus wasn't real, if Jesus wasn't really the son of God, there would be nothing to keep him from shooting me. Like I was scared of him. But in general, my encounters with people who believe really intensely in things that I don't and find alienating is tinged with true curiosity. But I have maybe a higher tolerance for hearing things that I don't agree with or for, you know, asking patient questions or gently trying to draw someone out about something that I find really offensive. Um, because I'm, I want to know, like, what is, what is it that you love so much that you're willing to, that, that it can shape the whole structure of your life? What does that feel like to you? Um, and I think that's because I felt, as I was writing these essays, like I didn't have that and I wanted it. And maybe these people had knew something that I didn't know. Even if one doesn't, as I do not also, feel a danger of conversion, like a, not like a, you know, in talking to people unlike me, I feel, I don't feel threatened in my ideas, but sometimes I feel politically and socially threatened um, by the the ideologies that come with some some of these faiths. And, you know, I feel I'm inevitably going to come up against 
something like what you described with, I think they were called Emma and Jesse, maybe, um, yeah. mm-hmm. where, where the word feminist was practically dirty to them and had to be mocked or disavowed. I'm sort of oversimplifying um, because they, they're not the same person, but in this sort of interaction you had with them, they seem to be professing sort of anecdotally um, actual forms of feminism and the ideas that they had about themselves and how they did or didn't conform to, to stereotypes of being a woman, being a woman in, you know, in their circles or whatever. Um, but the word feminist and also in the, in the eyes of the pastor um, uh, was anathema to them somehow. And I, and I always, I guess the danger I, I feel is just the danger that's constituted um, by that politics, by the politics that seems so often to be attached to, to sort of monolithic or fundamentalist um, worldviews, you know. But you, you seemed, I thought, to actually enjoy being with them often. You know, you, you almost sometimes, there's, a, there's a one scene on a beach and stuff where you seemed actually to be to be living around these people as yourself rather than only as a journalist. And that was what struck hmm. me as so interesting about the way you related to them. I don't know, maybe that, I mean, do you think that that is accurate or do you, or is that somewhat of a conceit in the, in the reporting of this? You know, uh, that's a really interesting question. It's funny to me that you can, I guess it's not surprising, but it's funny to me that you can kind of read that in the essay, that essay, Jesus Raves, which was about that that church community that I was with for a period of time. And you're right. Like, I did enjoy being around them. Um, I'm still friends with uh, Emma. Mm-hmm. Um, we, they are, they were kind and funny and interesting and, and, a pleasure to be around and extremely welcoming and joyful people. And at the same time, they hold a lot of beliefs that I not only don't believe, you know, they're, they're evangelical right. Christians. They believe that, you know, Jesus is the son of God, that whole, that whole category of beliefs I don't subscribe to. But as you're saying, they also had political beliefs and value sets like ethic sets that like I, was real felt really alienated from like the fact that they lived out you know certain certain ideas about their autonomy and their agency that were definitely indebted to feminism while being like ew don't call yourself a feminist you know that was sort of the the tone and i think that i i think that that was actually what creates maybe that's often for me what creates a productive tension in writing an essay, um, and maybe just in my life, which is to to say, which is that I realize that I there is something that I am attracted to, even as I am repelled by the circumstance. Um, I think that is a a theme that repeats in these essays, whether I'm writing about autopsies or writing about a debutante ball or writing about you know say yes to the dress, um, that I, there is something where I feel there's something for me to love in the situation. And also 
there is a big problem for me in the situation, usually intellectually, um, and trying to reconcile those dueling experiences, those dueling emotions um, are maybe just like, not to, not to be too meta about it, but I think it, it's a way for me to uh, figure, to wrestle with my own, the fact that I am such an ambivalent person, like putting that at the center of my work and making, making it my job to be able to hold a lot of conflict and tension in one essay and to try to wrestle with it and um, maybe not solve it, but just try to do justice to it. Um, And I think I may be less this way than I was when I was working on these essays. But, um, you know, I, there was, when I was working on that Christian's essay, I thought like, God, I know, I know this isn't for me. I know I don't believe in this, but it, it looks nice. You know, there was like a little part of me that was like, oh man, it looks like such a relief to believe yeah. in something so total. Um, and, and so there was a, you know, like, and I, I wrestled a lot and I, I often wrestle when I'm reporting um, with the, the feeling of, being able to kind of go, I often have to make myself sort of like show my hand or say what I think when it's a, when I disagree, because I am, it is very easy for me to kind of just listen and be quiet and ask questions and, and be like carrying on in my head, a a complicated set of like questions and buts and arguments. Um, And I think that it's, I think it's like the ethical obligation of a writer who's writing about people in public. If you're going to disagree with them, you should you should do it to their faces before you do it on on paper. Um, maybe not with, I mean, not if you're not safe to do so. But I haven't really been in that situation, with the possible exception of that police officer. Um, but that yeah, that affective dissonance is like I t- I do I tend to love the people I write about. Maybe not everything they think right. or everything about them, but it's very easy for me to be um, just wanting to be with them and to understand where they, why they think what they think and what they care about and what they love and what they know that I don't know. Well, you you said that um, maybe you're less that way now. I'm wondering as you get older, whether you feel like less of a chameleon um, than you did then or are you still the same kind of chameleon? I think really excellent journalists, for example, um, might have to remain pure chameleons in the work that they do for longer than say fiction writers who might feel a pull to, um, I don't know, to, to, to pick a final form or something for themselves. I don't know. I guess I'm just asking if you think you, um, merge sort of a question about permeability which you write about also in porousness you know the porousness mm-hmm. and permeability of the self and um and mind and stuff like that um do you see a change in yourself in that regard i think so yeah i think in the years since beginning this this collection and even i felt this way by the, by the time i was finishing it which is such a funny thing about maybe writing a book, which is that you're, you've 
if it takes you a while, you're a different person finishing mm-hmm. it than you were starting, yeah, right. uh, which can be weird because I, I had to attune the first essay of the book, which is set at the beginning of the journey of writing the book. I wrote um, or finished last. And so it was having to kind of astral project myself back into back into earlier Jordan, which was an odd experience. But I, I do think that I have become... I have felt much more um, grounded. I have become much more grounded in, uh, you know, on after all of those crossing all of those many thresholds or living through those many thin places of feeling like, oh, this is the ground I stand on now. This is who I am, and this is what my values are. And I don't believe in God, but that's okay. I have a, di-. you know, like all yeah, of those yeah. things feel much more settled. I think um, as a writer. Uh, and as a writer who sometimes goes out to report, um, I don't know if cham- maybe chameleonic is the word. I often feel that it's my job in those situations simply to meet people on their own terms and to listen um, rather rather than to advance my, myself or my own thinking. And so maybe that can read as chameleonic because when you're just listening and receptive— you tend to be a scrim that people will sort of project their own, whatever it is they've got going on, onto you. Yeah. So maybe the effect is chameleonic, but I think to me it it feels much less chameleonic. It feels much more just like a practice of um, of listening. So, I mean, this is like um, interesting in your essays because you sort of glancingly sometimes refer to things or people whose stories you don't complete because it's not um, needed in the form of the essay. It's a it's the right. correct decision. Right. But I'm also torn because I'm a meaning making critter, you know, and I, I'm curious about what happened to to people later, such as, you know, the friend you had when you were 13 who was a cutter and and lived with this inner being that wanted her dead um, yeah. or, you know, whether your, your guy friend chose, chose Habad or the other conservative orthodoxy he was leaning um, <laughs> toward and, and, and even you, you know, so you had, I love that you care. Uh, I oh, love I that. Totally they, I love that you care about them. I do. I want oh. to know, you know, how their stories came out and you also, you know, like um, you refer to like sometimes you're the character I want to know more about your your botched surgery that damaged your tongue, for instance. So that was very intriguing. And yet, you know, did your tongue get better? I don't know. It sounds good now. <laughs> um, so all to say, and you can tell me any of the stories of, of any of these people or not, but all to say, sort of how do you decide where to conceal, you know, and where to reveal? And I'm sure this is kind of a like creative nonfiction 101 sort of question, but I still think it's worth asking, you know, what's, what's too personal and what's, and what's not. And, Mm. um, you know, how do you know, you know, beyond maybe working with an editor sometimes or whatever, how do you know where to finish a storyline, you know? Oh, I love that question. Um, I'll start by telling you that my tongue is fine. Um, excellent. excellent. (laughs) That surgery, that surgery was a, um, a, a, a bad tonsillectomy. It was a tonsillectomy gone wrong. Wow. And I had to go in. Um, I, I woke up in the 
recovery room and was fine, but then it turned out that they had forgotten to they'd forgotten to suture part of my throat. And so I hemorrhaged and I had to go in for an emergency second surgery and they damaged, they clamped my tongue in a, in a rush and it killed all the taste buds on my tongue. Um, You recovered the taste buds. uh, Yeah. They, they, they they regrew. And I, I mean, it took, it was about four, four months or so, maybe four or five months before I could taste anything again, which was a really strange experience. Um, And it it happened to come at a really hard time. Um, I had, I I was, I got left by that woman that I had fallen in love with um, right at that time, like right when I was recovering. And so I had this funny experience of being like, I, it was, January in New York, which is the worst of all times, worst of all times. Uh, Um, I was heartbroken and super, super confused, um, about what my future was supposed to look like if I had been, you know, mostly straight and then just had my heart terribly broken by this woman, um, couldn't taste anything and felt like I was going through a period of, a period of not no, just like total, total confusion, total confusion about what was going to be, what my future was going to be, who I was going to be, what I was going to want. And I couldn't, a lot of the things that were grounding, that would have been grounding, like, I don't know, being able to eat a cookie, which I love to do, um, were somehow not available. And that was the, the, the space in which I wrote attunement, or at least the first parts of attunement, the, the first essay in the book, because I felt like if I can just, it, and I, that's when I was reading, I was rereading Kierkegaard at that time. And, um, and so what, what's so interesting about fear and trembling is that it's this, um, the writer, the author of that book is trying to attune. He's like, if I, it's almost like if I can attune myself in the right way, maybe I can have faith. Maybe I can, the belief that I want will arrive. And I sort of had this feeling like if I could attune myself properly, I would understand what I was supposed to, maybe by writing, (laughs) maybe that's how I was going to attune myself, but I was going to be able to understand, um, who I was, if, what kind of writer I was supposed to be. Was my tongue, was I going to be okay? Was my tongue going to heal? Was my heart going to heal? Was I going to go forward and, um, and, you know, be a person who, you know, finished this story about Christians and became a Christian or not? Um, and I, I was really, to, to your question, I was really, really resistant and I'm often resistant to putting too much of my own autobiography, like the the stuff that's going on with me into my own essays, in part because I feel like, stubbornly, I feel like that's not the interesting part. I feel like the interesting part or the thing I'm interested in is whatever I'm reading or meditating on to try to answer the question at hand. And I don't, and I often resist wanting to include like, oh yeah, I, you know, one of the reasons why I was (laughs) writing about attunement was that my, my tongue stopped working and I was heartbroken, you know, that, which is just, was a very, um, but I, but I, I have to put those things in often because otherwise the essay won't make sense. And so my, my, 
my rule of thumb for myself that I wonder if maybe someday I'll get a little gentler with myself about. But my my rule of thumb is to put to put in sort of the minimum that sort of like yeah. what is wh- how little of my own comings and goings can I get away with revealing here? Um, and often it's I, I wind up having to put quite a bit in, um, like the the essay about. Um, the debutante ball in Laredo, Texas, I wound up having to put in quite a bit of my own life and my own family and my, you know, my feelings about my um, own relationship to whiteness and and femininity and sexuality and all those kinds of things. But my my hope always is to not seem or read as solipsistic and not to bore um, because I tend to think that like whatever I'm doing or whatever I'm up to or whatever the plot of my own life is, is, is less interesting than the people I'm meeting and writing about or the thing that I'm reading or whatever it is I'm, I'm trying to, to solve for myself in the space of the essay. Right. And I think that the, the, uh, the spareness, the sparseness of your sort of self-referential um material text whatever in here is um generally like formally excellent because your your work is mostly you know it's thoughtful it's meditative um it's about ideas and this is why i like it it's certainly not it's the opposite of sort of it's not memoirish at all even though you're you're present in it. And I admire it for that. I also find that around the edges, I have curiosities, like curiosities <laughs> and sort of um, almost maybe prurient. And I don't mean that in a kind of <laughs> like sexual way or something or like criminal way, but sort of like, you know, like voyeuristic um, urges about some of it where I'm only being shown sort of a chink, you know, that there's just light mm-hmm. going through a chink in the blinds or whatever. And um, I really wish that I could get a glimpse into the room. But this does not equate to me wanting an essay to be different. It almost equates to me wanting you wanting to see how you might annotate um, you know, the mm-hmm. essay either in a conversation like this or in some separate um, you know, in some, in some kind of, uh, I don't know, um, annex to, to the main, um, the, the main, the main vehicle. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that's I, such a cool idea. <laughs> the fact that your essays even made me feel that way is kind of extraordinary because most often I, <laughs> you know, when people oversupply information, I I react poorly uh, also as a reader, you know. <laughs> I do too. I do too, which makes me a very neurotic editor and cutter of my own work because I am so I tend not to like when people volunteer too much. Um though I love reading memoir. It's it's funny. Like I I'm still trying to pinpoint what when I have the problem, when I'm sort of like, "Ugh, too mm-hmm. much." What is that? Because I'll read, you know, books filled with the I, the I pronoun and, you know, memoir after memoir after memoir with total bliss. But, um, when it, when it hits my, when it hits me wrong, it really hits me wrong. And so I am constantly 
controlling my own work for for that possibility, the possibility of that error. I know what you I know what you mean because I also can read I can also read long discursive things about you know personal personal events and feelings and everything and have loved several memoirs. I think we talked about one of them once, like the Lucy Greeley memoir. Oh, yeah. It's just one, just one of many, but um that I've loved. But I think maybe there's uh at least for me, there's something about um when something feels like confession for its own sake or or um indulgent for its own sake, uh self-indulgent for its own sake, rather than illuminating, you know? Yeah, that is the the rubric that I try to hold myself to is that what is is this in here because it's serving something? Is it telling telling the story? Is it illuminating um some logic, some piece of context that needs to be here? Um and if it's not, then you know, maybe I'll keep it if it like really delights me or if I think it's funny, but often I'll just um, try to get rid of it. Right, right. I mean, there are just many points. You're sort of intersections with other people. Um, you know, I was I was intrigued by like I could have probably had more of the drama of your of your failed relationships, for example. And I'm not someone who says that like easily. The it's endless not really number. No, I'm not. I'm not. I get sort of tired sometimes. I'm sort of tired by drama, but you were so um, parsimonious, like <laughs> in that that uh, you know, I was sort of intrigued, and and I guess you know also the stuff about OCD, um, which is sort of what I wanted to. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, sure. I really liked that that essay, um, which is the title essay, um, the second essay I think in the in the collection. Um, really kind of articulate about various things. It's a fairly, it's fairly intellectual. Um, and, um, I guess it just made me want to hear more from you about, about whether, whether you see obsession and obsessiveness as purely, I guess, in your own life and as a writer, you know, as, as purely sort of this kind of uncontrollable and and bedeviling kind of pathology or also as having a kind of passionate face, like a productive, um, rapturous uh, aspect of which it is good to partake, you know, as a writer for you. I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just curious about that. Yeah. I, I started writing that essay because there was something about, um, because I wanted to kind of interrogate an experience that I had lived with from, from very young, maybe the age of 12 or 13, um, the experience of having obsessive compulsive disorder, but in a way that I did not see reflected in the sort of conversations or media, um, where OCD was mentioned. It, uh, the first time that, uh, psychiatrist, or maybe it was a therapist, I don't know, suggested to me that maybe I had some, was dealing with some OCD. I thought like, that cannot be right. I am nothing like David Sedaris. Because <laughs> David Sedaris was the only person I'd ever, you know, like he had these essays about his compulsions and his tics from his youth on This American Life, which I used to listen to. Yeah, yeah, me too. With my mom in the car. And, and I had been so confused often and felt kind of isolated in my experience of 
of that particular mental illness because it didn't, it didn't seem, I don't know, adequately captured. Um, and I had wanted to research um, some of the some of the ideas about about OCD that I'd been that I'd been offered, which is why I you mentioned like obsession versus possession. That was something I found when I was looking back, sort of through the history of how psychiatric illnesses have been understood and categorized. That was, I believe, sort of a the medieval language, obsessio versus possessio, um, as a metaphor for a castle that's either being attacked or has been breached, right? And at the time, they they were saying that um, people who suffered from obsession were um, those who still, you know, their their minds remained intact. They were just sort of under fire or something like that, which is, a, I think, a messy metaphor given what we know now about different kinds of psych- psychiatric disorders, but mm-hmm. that was where that language came from. And I was curious where that language came from. Um, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to understand why sometimes the experience of falling in love felt as radically disruptive, as scary, as interesting, as compelling as the experience of being caught in a cycle of obsessions. And I happened to find in my research that actually the the brain patterns are pretty similar when you're falling in love and when you're having having an obsessive spell. Um, And and it was a a way of trying to come to grips to make a, a sort of more peace with this part of my mind, which is, you know, something, you know, is most of the time very, like, fine and under control and healthy in a clinical sense, but is also just remains true about my mind. I love to listen to songs 10 times in a row. I love to read the same book over and over and over and over again. I like to eat the same breakfast most days in a row. You know, there are just, when I, when I love something, when I have an enthusiasm for something, um, I, I am happy to kind of circle it. Um, and often writing to me feels like it's born out of circling a question or circling an idea, um, for many months or years, and then finally sitting down to try to figure out why I'm, why I'm circling on it. Um, that was definitely, that was true in a meta sense of the Thin Places essay, um, but is, I think, true of almost everything I write. Um, I'm curious to know why. Like, why does, why am I so, why do I keep thinking about OCD and falling in love and Romeo and Juliet and something to do with deep brain stimulation? Like, what is, why are all those things connected in my mind? And then I will, and I'll, and I'll be thinking on them, maybe not, and not obsessively in a clinical sense, but um, I'll be, I'll be, mulling them for a while and then I'll want to sit down and try to um make all those connections explicit for myself um which I often can only do if I feel like I am needing to explain it in a way that someone else will find legible <laughs> um the impulse to explain why things feel connected to me is um is powerful and I think that that is like a positive 
a positive outgrowth of the kind of mind that I have, even though it also like when I'm, you know, it really burdens me when I'm out of whack and, you know, not taking care of myself and can get really um, obsessive in a sort of OCD clinical way that feels, you know, not productive, but just frightening and distracting and disruptive to me. Mm. Um, and that, and then I, and those are circumstances under which I cannot really write. So it's, it's like, uh, on, two, on one side of the line, it's great for writing. And on the other side of the line, it's, it's not good. You know, you, you, you wrote about waiting and I've been, mm-hmm. um, waiting's kind of a, a demon for me in a certain way. And I've been thinking about it myself lately as well. You, you talk about waiting in the subway, but also waiting in general. And, and, you know, in the pandemic, I, I've thought about waiting, um, you know, how, how much of the time of our lives we, we spend waiting for, you know, a deus ex machina maybe, or like, you know, we wait until the world becomes what we want it to be, or we wait until the story of our lives becomes the story we once imagined. Um, the story we want to tell about our lives. And I wondered, well, I have been wondering and have been writing about this myself, but this intersected with your language on, on waiting, um, you know, sort of, I wonder how much of that waiting has to do with our notions of linear time, you know, um, time being kind of a straight line with a beginning and an end, which, Mm. you know, comes to us in part from, from Christianity. Um, Whereas, you know, if we told ourselves a more cyclical or circular story of time, whether we'd be less inclined to wait for some kind of external deliverance, you know, for the perfect to arrive in our lives. I also have been meditating on the idea of circular time, Um, though, I mean, limited being that I am, I seem to experience the day sort of morning to evening is in a semi-linear way. Um, but I, I think a lot of the project of this book for me was learning how to reconcile that waiting feeling, um, or to make, make peace with that waiting feeling that, so the anxiety of waiting, the frustration of waiting, the frustration of waiting for, and, and I had, I realized functionally that, um, a lot of the, the so-called thin places that I wanted to write about involved periods of intense, the feeling of intense waiting in my own life. Like when I was a kid and all of a sudden it felt like God had gone away and I waited for him to come back and I just wanted him to come back and I was just waiting for him to come back. Um, or waiting for, <sighs> waiting to figure out if I was going to reconvert, waiting to figure out who I was supposed to be with, waiting to figure out if my, you know, if my ex was going to call, if my tongue was going to heal, right? If, and that, pr- the profound discomfort of waiting, um, is so, I started to realize was a really generative um, time because when you're waiting, when you're in anticipation of a deus ex machina or of, you know, some 
some arrival, some change, some, you know, the other side of whatever that feeling is where you're like, I, something's about to happen. Something's about to come. And I know it, um, you pay more attention actually, I think to where you are in that discomfort. You pay more attention to the people around you. You pay, you're, you're asking bigger questions in that time. And so, um, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write a book of essays that that existed in that that place, that waiting, thin place. Um, and in doing it, funnily enough, I think I got to a realization that for me, that the Deus Ex Machina is not usually how these things resolve, at least in my life. Right. Um, and I've been thinking about that contemplating the the end what the end of the pandemic in scare quotes um because what is that is there's not going to be one day right it's not there's not going to be one um you know one moment when we all get to go back to right to whatever we imagine is 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 waiting for us or what's lying in front of us it's going to be this slow series of negotiations and healings and losses and setbacks and gifts and um like walking forward into the future and and I think I have wanted the thing that that this book has maybe done for me is to make me more interested in paying attention to the waiting and in, to accepting those kinds of those kinds of uncomfortable periods. I, I think I would argue that what you're describing possibly is is the um, process by which waiting is transformed into something else. So instead of performing the act of waiting as you wrote these essays, in a sense, you were moving out of I don't know, expectation or frustration or impatience or something into this still space of like meditation and, you know, thoughtfulness. And um, it's not, it's a transformation of waiting into some other thing. I think of waiting as being, you know, it's like hope, it's anticipation, expectation, whatever, but it's a, it's intently bent upon the future right that's its goal is to be at the next thing right but actually what you were doing was like occupying this space of waiting with uh, creation right like i i know that sounds maybe a hokey or something but you're actually turning it into making stuff you know and making stuff in a time of waiting almost becomes not waiting at all yeah. It eventually becomes its own its own project. Um there's a a part at the very end the very last essay in the book. Yeah. Um which is about a little bit about tattoos and about healing, how the how the skin heals and how we kind of move on from experiences that have been hard. Um and it's uh there's a scene where I describe um, sitting with my my partner at the time, now my wife, my of course sort of new love at the time, and I was uh, watching a video on YouTube of a neuron 
firing. It was like, the and the caption of the video was, this is what happiness looks like. And it just looked like this tiny, gross goober of a man thing wearing bell bottom. It was like, it was like a pair of pants, but like a booger, a pair, a booger pair of pants, um, sort of gumby. Pa- pants comprised of boogers. Yeah. Sort of Gumby like, and it was like walking along a ridge, you know, like, and it looked so resolute. I don't know what uh, scientists listening to this will be horrified, um, to hear me describing this, but it was, and I loved this video so much because it was like, this is what happiness is this tiny gross hero carrying on, um, which is, I think what the words I used to write about it, this tiny gross hero carrying on. And I think that that was where I came to at the end of all this like work that I made out of a waiting space um, was not just, you know, finding a home in, in love, but also of realizing that I, and, and, and all, all kinds of homes, you know, like finding all kinds of um, feeling settled where I had been unsettled at the beginning, but it wasn't because of any one thing. It was just because like I had put on my gross booger bell bottoms and like kept, <laughs> kept like tramp tromping forward um and and that and I was happy you know like that actually did constitute um my happiness after a while mm-hmm. yeah I I was um reading what you said in that essay about the sort of vexed nature of the idea of happiness a little bit how you know it doesn't really make a distinction between between long-term welfare or contentment or something and, and fleeting pleasure. And, you know, one has to do with neurotransmitters and, and dopamine, right. Um, um, and the other doesn't really, because we can't seek novelty, which our brain loves and finds rapturous. We can't seek it all the time. We can't seek it constantly. And, um, Mm -hmm. and you didn't say all of that in that sentence, but you were talking about our sort of confusion about, about happiness and what kind of happiness is even possible. Um, and, y- y- you know, I, I've been thinking about that too, our sort of association of, of long-term happiness with love and monogamy and um, how difficult it is to, um, to sort of reconcile that with continued, uh, continued thrill and pleasure When we're kids, the fact that the world is magical is so new and so apparent. Um, even things that we now, you know, now as adults, we we understand how an airplane flies. And so it doesn't seem magical because it's mundane, but it's pretty magical that an airplane flies. And children, because they haven't seen it before, um, can be really in touch with that. Um, fireflies are pretty magical, Uh if you've seen them every summer for 50 years, they may not, I don't know. I still think they're magical, but they're, you know, the, 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 the surprise and wonder, um, can decrease with, with prolonged exposure. And I think, um, it takes, I don't know if it's work or something. It takes something, um, to, to not become desensitized 
Yeah, yeah. It's probably the novelty seeking right part of our brains um, is is you know no longer perceiving these things as new, right? Um, but I don't know. I think I, I don't know. It just this essay, this particular essay, w- was really thought provoking for me in this regard. Like particularly the stuff about just so you know, remember how thrilling it was to just like make a tent out of blankets. You know, like yes. stuff like that, right? When we were kids, um, and it's now no longer so thrilling, you know, <laughs> to do that. Um, but we see we see the world as adults with a view toward its usefulness to us in in immediate terms, often, and rather than trying to keep imbuing it with imaginative glory or intrigue or fantasy we we've taught ourselves to to see it almost in defensive terms we defend against it and we filter out the useless from the useful and in the course of doing that cast aside um so much of the magic that is inherent in everything around us you know we actually maybe actively prevent ourselves from from trying to see that, you know, and that seems like one of the more tragic aspects of getting older (laughs) to me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I wonder if that's because to fully take in (laughs) the world as an adult with everything an adult knows is so overwhelming and frightening and heartbreaking. Um, and and maybe there's an aspect of defense yeah um the, in in that kind of shutting n- narrowing the f- the field of focus and looking at purely like okay what do i need to do what's you know Absolutely. what do i need yeah. next what do i need to accomplish or stepping stones like across a creek or something where you you yeah. have to just get to the next one to get to the other side and you don't really look at the minnows or the piece of garbage that's floating <laughs> you know, yeah, um, I think it. Yeah, totally. And I think it. I think it requires um, real intention, like over and over again, which I'm not often very capable of to turn around and be looking at all the minnows, and some braveness, you know, and some courage to to really um, make yourself vulnerable to the world in the way that that you have to in order to engage its magic and its beauty. And like, that's the thing that we think, I think we forget about being children is like being a child is often terrifying because you don't, you're very vulnerable to the world. You don't know how it works. You don't, you're afraid of things because you don't know that they won't hurt you. Um, And, and you believe in dragons as much as you believe in fairies. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sometimes maybe we grow out of being willing to, take all that, all that back on. Like that is, I think what a thin place is, is being in the state of being really able to see all of that magic. They are, they are big magical places and, and frightening places too, and places of like intense connection. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. 
Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher. Because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.